Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. How are Hi, you? Carrie. I'm good. I'm, I'm one magnum down today. Nice. <laughs> Ice cream, not um bottle of wine, <laughs> I should just say for the record. Yeah, the magnums are coming fast and hard these days for you, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, let's clarify ice creams. <laughs> no, it was great. It was a beautiful thing to do on a sunny afternoon. How about you, my love? Similarly, well, not similarly because I didn't have ice cream, but I am just I'm riding the the wave of this blissful weather right now and just praying it continues and I have been swimming, which is very exciting. Um, I went last week as well. Isn't it just to get your best. body in a body of water? It's like the best yeah it feels really good i i do this thing where i run down to the river and then i jump in and then i run back and the it's... most wholesome woman <laughs> i know <laughs> that's really great i love it do you know what actually talking of wholesome i smoked a cigarette last night for the first time in ages and it was really great Ooh, so because i tried to smoke a cigarette recently and it it was disgusting. Well, you just weren't smoking the right cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need some menthols or something. I'm glad we're swimming and putting disgusting chemicals into our body. Sorry, that was so judgmental. I'm really happy you smoked a cigarette. <laughs> I don't take it that way. It's all good, baby. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, today we're very thrilled to feature literary friction favorite Deborah Levy, That's who right. came to talk to us about the third book in her acclaimed living memoir trilogy, which is called Real Estate. This memoir is about a lot of things, like really a lot of things. It contains multitudes, you might say. It's about being a writer and a woman, about how we make and remake a life, how we are remembered and how we love. But it is also about that title, Real Estate. Uh, it thinks very deeply about what a home really means and the value of property. So, as you might have expected, in honor of Deborah's book, we wanted to talk about real estate and literature. We'll be asking some questions like, how can books help us understand where and how we make our homes? And why do some houses like Mandalay or Hill House loom so large in our imaginations? But before we get started, Octavia, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about Deborah? I sure do. Deborah Levy is the author of seven novels, most recently The Man Who Saw Everything. She's been shortlisted twice each for the Goldsmiths Prize and the Man Booker Prize. Her short story collection, Black Vodka, was nominated for the International Frank O'Connor Short Story Award. Her work is widely translated, and she's also the author of a trilogy of memoirs, a living autobiography on writing, gender politics, and philosophy, which have been heavily recommended here on the show. They really have. The first two volumes, Things I Don't Want to Know and and The Cost of Living won the Prix Femina Etranger 2020, and the final volume, Real Estate, was published in spring 2021. Also, quick reminder that our Patreon is live, so if you would like extra content each month and to support the work that we do already, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash lit friction and you can listen to our latest extra special bonus mini-sode, and uh, you can also suggest themes for us to discuss, so if you would like to do that, go ahead. Another reminder, we have just teamed up with bookshop.org where we set up a page where you can not only see all the books featured and recommended on the show, but buy them and support indie bookshops. 
But for now, stay tuned for our interview with Deborah Levy, a more general discussion of real estate and literature, and finally, our usual book recommendations. So if you want to check out some hot property, stay with us (laughs) on Literary Friction. I just got a window into an alternate reality where you're a real estate agent in lots of like gold jewelry. I think I could do it. Yeah, I could could see that for you. I mean, my job, I'm basically a glorified salesperson, so it wouldn't be too big a leap. (laughs) I would buy your penthouse. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Deborah Levy, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Hello. Hi. We've asked you to start with a reading from real estate. Do you mind setting it up for us? Yeah, I will. I'm going to start on the first page and skip a bit. London. In the winter of January 2018, I bought a small banana tree from a flower stall outside Shoreditch High Street Station. It seduced me with its shivering wide leaves, also with the new leaves that were furled up waiting to stretch out into the world. The woman who sold it to me had long fake eyelashes, blue, black and luscious. In my mind's eye, Her lashes stretched all the way from the bagel shops and grey cobblestones of East London to the deserts and mountains of New Mexico. The delicate winter blooms at her stall had me thinking about the artist, Georgia O'Keeffe, and the way she painted flowers. It was as if she were introducing each one of them to us for the first time. In O'Keeffe's hands, they became peculiar sexual, uncanny. Sometimes her flowers looked as if they had stopped breathing under the scrutiny of her gaze. And then I quote her, when you take a flower in your hand and really look at it, it's your world for that moment. I want to give that world to someone else. She had found her final house in New Mexico, a place to live and work at her own pace. As she insisted, it was something she had to have. She had spent years restoring this low-slung adobe house in the desert before she finally moved into it. I was also searching for a house in which I could live and work and make a world at my own pace. But even in my imagination, this home was blurred, undefined, not real, or not realistic, or lacked realism. I yearned for a grand old house and a pomegranate tree in the garden. It had fountains and wells, remarkable circular stairways, mosaic floors, traces of the rituals of all who had lived there before me. That is to say, the house was lively. It had enjoyed a life. It was a loving house. The wish for this home was intense, yet I could not place it geographically, nor did I know how to achieve such a spectacular house with my precarious income. All the same, I added it to my imagined property portfolio, along with a few other imagined minor properties. I think I'll leave it there. Wonderful. You've just been reading from Real Estate, which is 
the third and last book in the Living Autobiography series or trilogy that you've written. And I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about the genesis of this trilogy and did you always envisage it as a trilogy? <laughs> yeah, that's such a good question. No, it started as a dare, you know, because, <laughs> because I mean, who, I, I made up the term living autobiography uh, because these were always going to be a mashup of, you know, travel writing, philosophy, politics, and um, I didn't really know what to call them, but that seemed close enough because they written in the present tense in the storm of life in the first person. But the beginning uh, was the first one in the series, Things I Don't Want to Know. And the start there was George Orwell's 1946 essay, Why I Write. Now, this had been, this is a really short essay, and it had been on my shelf for years, and one day I took it down and read it. And uh, Orwell had four headings to describe what motivated him to hammer his typewriter, political purpose, historical impulse, aesthetic enthusiasm, sheer egoism. Hmm. And I thought they were pretty good, you know. I thought they, they kind of stood. And I thought, well, what would happen if I if I stole his headings and gave them a spin from a female writer's point of view, my point of view? So I typed up political purpose. And then, to my astonishment, the lines that I wrote were something like, um, that spring when life was very hard and I was at war with my lot and couldn't see where there was to get to, I seemed to cry most on escalators. And I thought, well, I would never imagine myself writing that sentence under political purpose. So what's going on? And then I thought, well, what if the narrator, who is myself uh, or someone quite like myself, finds out what's going on. Why is she crying on escalators? And, um, and why is it political? And so I just, I, I just proceeded. And um, that was the beginning. And it was indeed political. And it was, it was the beginning of um, the first living autobiography. Um, and then it seemed to me, with the cost of living, the second one, in the series that I could take, um, these are not, these books are not about a whole life. They don't ever pretend to be, they, they selected, selective parts of, of turbulent events in a life. I thought, well, why don't I give that a go? And that was at a time when my marriage was on the rocks, when I was going to make, have to make another kind of family home. Let's see what happens. And that was the cost of living. And the final one, I think it's the final one. You know, sometimes I'm writing a fourth one in my head, but I kind of slap it down. <laughs> um, real estate. Well, I discovered that in these slim books, I'd covered sort of 20 years of a life. Uh, 
books and the books start, the first one starts when my children are young and it ends when they leave home. Um, so real estate had to land the trilogy and um, and that's about indeed a such a, a real longing, physical longing for a house and a home and a conversation. Are they the same thing? Perhaps a sort of mini utopia, a modest utopia, because I'm not really interested in grand utopias. Because, you know, every time we uh, we have a table and we can put chairs around it and we invite friends and strangers to that table, we've made something happen. So, so real estate looks at, you know, a lot of unreal estate as well, sort of fantasy and reality. And reality has a big place in these books. But the fantasy is, is that the narrator has a lot of, unreal estate, these sort of fantasy dream homes that she puts into her unreal property portfolio and furnishes. And really, that's that's about making, I guess, um, a convivial place, uh, a comfortable place in the world. And those are the three books. As you say, you they're they're kind of narrated by you, but also a narrator who's maybe not quite you. And in real estate, you include a scene where you're talking to an audience about who the narrator is in the Living Autobiography series, which we really both of us, Carrie and I, really enjoyed. We love a bit of meta <laughs> meta, meta textual experience. But yeah, I, I, in that scene, you also tell the audience, oh, well, a member of the audience, that the weight of living has been heavier than in the books. And as you said just now, the books are slim and they take in a, a large span of your life, but they are selective. And there is a lightness to the writing, even though you're taking in these huge life events that is a real pleasure to read. But yeah, could you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Uh, the weight of living. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, my goodness, do I know what I, what do I know how to actually describe that? I suppose that I'm not really, I don't write self-help books. I would never give advice in case somebody takes it. <laughs> so all I could do was to try and embody a female subject. I know this sounds a bit abstract, but given that um, it seems to me a big problem is to be objectified, to be spoken over, to be spoken for, and how we, how I might internalize all that. How, how would I find a voice? How do you construct that I, an I that isn't really interested in winning arguments? Um, not that I'm against it either, by the way. But, um, but, but, you know, just isn't sort of incredibly certain and opinionated and wise. I can't bear wisdom. And um, how could I construct an I, that's the first person, that is as 
as porous as as I feel. So how how do you how does one become a subject and not an object, right? Mm. So that's the sort of drive of of these autobiographies. How can I embody and not disembody a female presence moving forward in the world? I mean, I know that's that sounds easy, but it isn't really. I, that really obsessed me. I thought, okay, I want to embody a female presence. I want to give her mind her mind value. It's not that her body isn't wounded and she emotionally carries great turbulence in the book, but it's it it was her mind that I wanted to give most value to, by which I mean how she thinks. And then, just to contradict myself, mm-hmm. to, to to let her feel what she feels. So that sounds easy to do, but if you think about it in your daily life, it's not that easy to feel what we feel. And frankly, I think that no writing would really be boring if we told our lives as we feel it. And that's not the same as um, saying, oh, I felt very sad today or I felt very angry because. No, no, that's, that, that's not it. Um, so that was the, that's some of the project in this trilogy to embody and make present a female mind. How weird is that as a project? I love it. I love it. And I think one of the reasons I, I respond, I've responded kind of viscerally to this series. Um, and I think it has something to do with not often reading books that put the female mind on a pedestal, but also exactly what you're talking about in terms of a, a book that attempts to be true about how things are felt. Mm. Um, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about, actually, because I could see that for you, you know, I know the narrator isn't you, but it, she is also you. And I wonder if that is, I wonder if you felt that you needed to do some things to protect yourself. I mean, does that, does it feel very vulnerable to you to be revealing those emotional depths of your experiences or, or are you not Hmm. afraid? That's a fair, that's a fair question. Um, So, so there's a, intimate voice and there's a very formal voice I think that's important in a narrator is going to steer this work you know um, so here's some questions you don't want a well I don't want a narrator who is going to disclose everything like um, what am I supposed to do with that as a reader so it's going to be selective um, and, and the and the ex, the experiences and the events that are in these books are there for a purpose, you know. So, in a sense, that's a, that's a protection. All writing is an artifice, even if you're creating something called a living autobiography. You are creating 
taking off one mask, that's the mask of fiction, where you have characters as your avatars, but you do have another avatar that's very like like yourself in the narrator. And so it was important to me to actually keep a kind of formality. I think that's the only way that I could proceed. And... No, because because my political purpose, what didn't really make it vulnerable to me was that my political purpose was to, as I've just said, is, is to, um, I'm laughing because it really was a dare. I, I, do, I do mean that because, you know, most people who write autobiographies are kind of celebrities. I'm not that. Um, um, you know, this is a quite an ordinary life. And so how dare you write about it um, kind of thing. But my political purpose was to value female thought. That's it, really. I really love the way women think. Why did you want to focus on the concept of real estate? with this last one, or this maybe last one? I think it's so important what women own. Mm. It's, it's, it's really complicated, isn't it? Because you say, well, what are you talking about? You know, is this a capitalist project where we, we, we are literally looking at a property portfolio, but actually what women own and what they discard and what they bequeath is incredibly important. And I think I've never undermined the domestic in any of my books. I think that's a sort of, that's the wrong way to go. You know, the home has trapped women and women have created, the vintage story is that women have created homes for their families and not felt at home in their own house. That interests me a lot and um, is a theme that runs through all three books. But I think it's an incredible thing to design, to be the architect of the most humble home and to make a, a, a comfortable and creative and loving space. I have great respect for that. Um, And in that respect, I quote Marguerite Duras quite a lot because she writes about that magnificently in her book. It's translated in English as Practicalities. So why not call it real estate? Because if you don't have inherited wealth, if you earn your own living, then what, what, what is your real estate by the time you get to 60? Well, in my case, they will be my books. And that is not romantic. It's actually a fact. And those books, well, those books are the bricks and mortar language language is a, a sort of building site 
you can demolish property and you can rebuild it. You're always deleting language and rewriting it and remaking it and redesigning it and reaching, <laughs> reaching for a design that you sometimes achieve. Did you want this book to be in conversation with a room of one's own? I mean, it's hard not to think about Wolf and and her thoughts mm. on on women and the spaces that they needed in order to create art. Because of course, all three of these books are also about writing um, mm. and what it means to write and what it means to be a writer and and what a woman needs to be a writer, in particular. Yes. Well, obviously, I reread it and I've I've reread that essay so many times in my life, and strangely enough, this time round. It uh, just seems so much more political than more political than ever. I have spoken about the beginning of that essay when Wolf is she's walking on the grass at an Oxbridge college and she's thinking about something and a beagle, a porter, is walking towards her and this man looks furious. And she immediately forgets what she's thinking about. And he tells her that she can't walk on the grass. And she says, she writes, Right, well, I've been put in my place. I'm to walk on the gravel. And the grass, the turf, is for scholars and fellows. And you have to remember that Wolf wasn't educated. Her brothers were sent to Cambridge, I think. But she was, you know, she, she she was lucky enough to make do with her father's library. But she was furious about that. And and what she can't say, but I can say for her, is that perhaps what she was thinking about was valuable because it was going to become a room of one's own. And it was interrupted by by this porter telling her to get off the grass. So there's one line at the end of the book. It's bleak. I don't underline that influence. Um, and I won't give a spoiler here, but I actually, the last line in real estate is grass. And it comes from, it comes from that anecdote. Mm. Wolf, Wolf is so interesting to reread at various stages in life. Like I've just read, reread Mrs. Dalloway and I realize what a radical book that is. She's so furious about stifling upper class, um, although, you know, that is her class, but stifling heterosexual family life in Mrs. Dalloway she really nails it. She 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 just makes uh, Clarissa Dalloway's friendship with Sally Seaton, in a way, the most important part of that book, apart from Sept, Sept, uh, you know, apart from Warren Smith, uh, where she she critiques war and its senselessness and um, the psychiatric care that was available to Warren Smith at that time is just so appalling and she had experienced that sort of care as well Well, care isn't really the word she felt so affronted by it and so damaged by it 
she's she's a really radical writer i discover all over again and a room of one's own is just has some of that fire too I mean, it's one of the things that I enjoy so much in, in your writing and in the writing of a few other kind of people working today, actually all women writing memoirs is this intertextuality between your work and the work of other writers. But I also, I was so pleased that in the fifth chapter in Real Estate, you pay homage to translators because I feel like they are often the invisible heroes as you kind of describe them of the literary industry. And it's changing now, but not enough. And you open this chapter with this wonderful quote from Walter Benjamin um, from Illuminations about the role of the translator as being to liberate the language imprisoned in a work, in the recreation of that work. And then you describe a bit the experience of having your own work translated. And I just, I, I love the idea that translators are there to liberate something and that actually language is a container, a bit like a building, a bit like a home maybe. And within it are the ideas which which all these kind of other artists and artisans can um, can get to. Definitely. I wonder if, if you could talk about what you find most exciting about the process of being yeah, translation is is it, it is like a home, but you you continually rearranging the furniture, right? Because, mm-hmm. because nothing is going to be in the same place. Very little is going to be. In the, you're going to move the table. You're going to move the sofa and the lamps and the bookshelves. That's so exciting to me. I mean, at first it was. It, you, you know that the idea that actually your actual title might not work in another language was so strange to me. Like, well, no, I, I I want something close to my title, but I've got I've got quite used to that being changed. So in France, um, real estate isn't going to work, and the rough trans. Well, the re-inscription is it'll be called an inventory, uh, inventory, inventory of life. So something like that. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, And the point of writing for me is that reach, that sort of deep dive into the world. It's, It's really so exciting to me. And I am fascinated always with the ways in which translators have to reimagine the book on one level and get closer to it on another. So I do give quite a lot of space to translation, moving the furniture. I love that, moving the furniture. I also wanted to ask you about the best male friend in this book. Um, It's one of the central relationships in the book between the narrator and this man who she calls her best male friend and who does some very questionable things throughout the book. But at the end, that the last kind of thing that we hear about him is the narrator saying that she is very fond of him. And it, it just made me think about how we can love very flawed people. And <laughs> I, I I wonder if that was something that you were thinking about as, as you were writing. Yeah, that's my only point. I'm interested in loving someone flawed and in the deep conversations, quite deep conversations that happen around problems in life. We don't have to agree with each other and we don't want to hurt each other either. So just that coexistence of contradictory feelings 
um, to let in paradox, to let in how complicated life is, not to reduce it to something that uh, that just doesn't feel true. And we know this in all our friendships. If we had to agree with our friends all the time, I'm not sure how far that friendship would go, really. So that's a, that, that is an important part of the book, yeah. Also, it feels like a big part of this book in particular is about reckoning with your legacy as a writer in a very kind of real way and re-encountering your previous incarnations through your work. And then also, actually, there's a, a moment where you, um, you're you haunted in a way by your younger self through an inscription written in a book that was a, a gift. Um, but I, I, I was really interested in the way that you look back on what you were trying to achieve in your earlier writing, particularly in your novels. And I wondered, like, how do you find it at this stage of your life, encountering previous versions of yourself on the page in that way? <laughs> yeah, well... Um, you could ask yourself that same question. Mm. And you'll have all kinds of <laughs> you'll have all kinds of different responses to that. Um, in the earlier novels, I think that the adventure of language was just such a thrill to me. How far can you push it? You know, I started off writing for the theatre. And that was an amazing thing because you literally put words into actors' mouths. And in rehearsal, if you write three bad lines and a very skilled actor speaks those lines and they die in her mouth, you just quickly on the spot rewrite those lines until they feel right and true and the cadence falls in the right place and and you or or you delete five lines and you find one line to do all the work. So I look back on the on, on my younger writing self as someone who was exploring everything, sometimes successfully, sometimes really not. Um, and I don't know how you can become a writer without doing that. It's certainly that, you know, to, to have written one perfect novel at a very young age, wasn't going to be my journey. And I don't regret that in any way. I, I'm with Marguerite Duras when she writes, I think I quoted in Real Estate, that her problem with some kinds of writing is that it has no extension, no silence, no darkness, no real author. It conforms. And what's the, you know, writing is hard. The slog of writing a whole book. What would be the point of being in your comfort zone? Because life isn't comfortable and our thoughts aren't comfortable all the time. So how can we make life writing as complicated as life mm. really is my project? Mm. One of the things I did want to ask you about is, you know, speaking of en encountering your past self, a story that you wrote for Ambit magazine in the 80s has recently resurfaced called Proletarian Zen, in which you use some stereotypes and, and racist dialect that mocks the way that East Asian people talk. And I wonder what it's been like to encounter your old self in that way, especially when it when it has shocked and and it seems to have hurt a number of, of readers. Yeah, 
I'm so sad about that. If I if I could give notes to my younger writing self, my goodness. Um, so the intention of that story was to write about. Um, I was asked to write about stereotypes in fiction, and and the bad idea was that I would write it in in the stereotype. Um, and that was not for me to do. It was a satire. It's called Proletarian Zen. So, you know, you go back to your younger self and you just think, you really needed some help because that was never going to... That That's a failure. It's That was never going to work. It's not your place to do it. And the critique of it is um is right it's eloquent i stand by it it was just a, a piece of writing that that was an experiment that really was wrong that didn't work and so we have to stand by our failures and claim them and own them there's a a quote that carrie and i both really enjoyed in real estate where you write it seems to me that a domestic space is gendered and a space for living is more fluid Mm. and I I loved that because I loved the idea that you know the way that language plays back into our own minds and structures our own thoughts is so important and if we think about home as a closed space or as a space that we associate with one gender identity over another we we hold ourselves back (laughs) from oh, the fluidity that's on offer for us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, yeah, do you think we should start talking about spaces for living? Like, can we engineer a, a linguistic change so that people can let go of the ownership almost of it's the idea? Essential, just essential. Uh, spaces for living. That's, and I, I actually much prefer that to family as well. Mm-hmm. Spaces, spaces for living, that's the one. Thank you for that. Um, maybe that'll have to be the new sort of um, radical real estate copy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pieces for living. Yeah, absolutely. Deborah Levy, thank you very much. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to speak to you both as ever. This episode is sponsored by Picador in partnership with AKT. This month, we wanted to celebrate some of the extraordinary queer voices on Picador's list and highlight the work of AKT, the national LGBTQ plus youth homelessness charity who provides safe homes and better futures to LGBTQ plus young people, working to ensure that no young person has to choose between a safe home and being who they are. Picador have partnered with AKT on their Pride celebrations with a Picador Queer Voices book club event, featuring some of the best queer talent in fiction writing. Head to AKT's Instagram page, at AKT Charity, to watch the event back on IGTV and hear from Kieran Millwood Hargrave, author of The Mercies, Emma Donahue, author of The Pull of the Stars, Andrea Lawler, author of Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, and Julia Armfield, author of Salt Slow, give their practical tips for turning writing into a career and talking about what their queer identity means to them as artists. To support AKT's important work with LGBTQ plus young people, head to akt.org.uk to donate. 
all of the books by the authors mentioned are available at your local independent bookshop. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about real estate and literature. I'm really excited that we're talking about this today. It's definitely a theme that's come up in other discussions, but we really wanted to give it its own space. Hey. (laughs) In real estate, Deborah Levy talks about the difference between a house and a home. And there is a big difference, isn't there? The places we live are not just spaces or buildings. Making them into a boat inscribes them with meaning, and they in turn can tell us so much about their inhabitants. Um, and perhaps that is why literature has given us so many memorable houses and residences. I mean, just Google like houses and literature, and you get these lists of all of these houses, Manderley, Hill House, um, Pemberley. I mean, and it's not just white British authors from the past, but those are the ones that came to mind immediately. But let's start by asking, what function can real estate serve in literature? Well, the the first thought I had was a very simple one, which is just that it's a way of containing a narrative in a physical space. So like, um, my Year of Rest and Relaxation by Tessa Moshfeg came to mind, which is a novel that mostly takes place within this one woman's apartment. Or Days of Abandonment by Elena Ferrante, another one where the fact that it's set in the interior space largely of this woman's life is a very important plot point. So the confinement to the space can say something. Also, obviously, it's very gendered. The home is an always a loaded setting when women write fiction, because, you know, historically, men are able to write about the world, and they're able to be flaneurs and flan around. <laughs> and women were confined to domestic spaces, and therefore, the stories they were allowed to tell were always domestic stories. So there's that side of things. I think also, it's a way of telling us a lot about the person who lives in the real estate in question. Um, Like obviously there's Jay Gatsby's mansion in The Great Gatsby, right? They can be such sort of significant markers of wealth and class and all of the things that the trappings of real estate, which I know we'll get to in a minute. And then of course, you've got things like, I mean, I know it's not all white people from the past, but the big one, Brideshead Revisited, right? Like the idea of this this house, this location as a place that the characters in the novel return to over time in order to ground our understanding of how they change and evolve and what they go through. That's so true. And also that the fact that houses become these vessels for memories and nostalgia, and that's exactly what happens in Brideshead Revisited. But I was also thinking about The Past by Tessa Headley, which is actually based on a novel called The House in Paris by Elizabeth Bowen, where it's about this family returning to a home that they spent lots of time in. And of course, that home becomes the kind of Proustian medium through which they think about their past and have to reckon with their past and re-experience their past. And that's always happening in houses and with houses and in fiction, especially because I think about this a lot now that I live in a cottage that was built in 1610. I mean, we talk about property and possession. We can get into that later again. But, you know, you're only going to own a house for so long. A house is probably going to survive you. And a house is this amazing palimpsest of all of the lives that have occupied it for years and years and years. And I think there's a lot of fiction that takes advantage of that as well. Mm, Definitely. And then you also have 
the kind of other way of looking at it, which is maybe, you know, if it's a kind of more frontier narrative, you build your house yourself, you create your own abode from bricks and mortar and all of that. And I mean, you can't talk about real estate without bringing the concept of legacy into it and inheritance and how some people are afforded that luxury and other people are not. And it's a deeply political place to be talking about narrative and story, isn't it? Yeah, let's get into that because I think it's impossible to ignore. And actually, you know, so much of of literature about houses is also by almost default about class and about ownership and who's allowed to own what. And especially in the midst of a housing crisis that we're having in the UK right now, where a stable home is actually, not, you know, not a luxury that a lot of people are are able to afford not everyone has a house and and i think literature has to to confront that doesn't it totally and i think you also have this very kind of intense and sometimes quite uncomfortable uh divide between the fact that like a lot of people who buy fiction or the kind of the classic reader of fiction is like a middle class woman with leisure time you know reading in the comfort of her home obviously these are outdated ideas in some respects but they're definitely there as tropes and the writer you know, the, the romantic figure of the writer is of, of someone who is not economically wealthy and who is like maybe, you know, unlikely to own a house of their own and all of that. In reality, of course, we know that also a lot of writers are very privileged because it's not a job that you take on if what you're interested in is money, because very few people make enough money to live off by writing books. So you have this kind of difficult relationship between the reader and the writer located around property. And that's why the book I really wanted to mention here was Down and Out in Paris and London by George Orwell, which was written deliberately for the middle and upper classes, who he knew would be reading it from the comfort of their own homes. And he had this very liminal experience in these two cities that are both associated with a lot of wealth and opulence, but also, of course, contain a lot of degradation and extreme poverty. And I think that, you know, Orwell was always an agitator, wasn't he? And that book is a real a real way of sticking a kind of two fingers up at, at some people and also shining a really important light on the realities of life for the people who aren't being written about by Evelyn Waugh and Noel Coward or whoever else, right? Yeah, totally. I think there's a way that the fetishization of wealth is often played out through these novels about big mansions. Like even if ultimately they're kind of being critical of the upper classes or an exploration of, of how class corrupts. Why do you read novels like Brideshead Revisited? It's partially to kind of be in the mansion. Right. And then I think the thing that's interesting is to think about millennial, the the fact that the millennial generation and those those to follow home ownership is an even more contested issue. And actually, you know, we're largely a generation of renters. Um, and literature is starting to reflect that, like Raven Leilani's Luster um, is a book that is about precarity in lots of ways and kind of engages with that. And I think um, there's a poet called Holly Pester as well, who writes brilliantly about being a tenant. And that's coming in much more. And I'm pleased to see it because it's an important issue to be welcomed into the fictional space, don't you think? I was thinking about Beloved by Toni Morrison, which is another novel that features a house, which is sort of it's haunted for a number of reasons. But also it's a novel that it makes clear that like Seth owning a house, Seth is an escape slave. And this is an essential part of her freedom is owning property. Property in some ways is 
is a form of freedom. And and maybe we can get into that in relation to writing as well, because, you know, it's certainly a point that many writers have made about the necessity for real estate. Do you think a writer needs real estate to thrive? I think that, well, of course, Virginia Woolf would say, you know, you need a room. Um, <laughs> yeah. And like, it's a fair point, you know, obviously Virginia Woolf was also a woman with access to an enormous amount of real estate. <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, the writer has no place of work. So yes, the writer requires a form of real estate um, that isn't bestowed upon them by their job, right? Like in more conventional careers, you're granted access to the real estate of your workplace. That's part of the job and you don't have to pay for it. They pay you to be there, ideally. And I think this is maybe why, you know, the blue plaques that you see in, around London that say where writers have lived, or it's not just writers, obviously, it's people of note in general. But I think people are so kind of interested in that because there's this literary fetish of like, oh, this is the building where, X wrote Y, you know, you can go and see where this writer spent their time maybe having their ideas, but but all in all likelihood actually writing as well. And that is interesting to people. But I, I essentially, what do you need to write? You need a pencil and a piece of paper, you know, and there is that kind of thing in writing communities and writers. And I can fall prey to this as well, can become very neurotic about their workspace needing to be just so and exactly this. And in my experience, I can only speak for myself. That is usually a wild procrastination effect because <laughs> when I'm really inspired, I will write wherever the hell I am on whatever I've got, you know? Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that also gets back to this idea of a house being able to tell us something about its inhabitant and like an essential curiosity that we all have, which is... I think sometimes it tips over into a kind of nosiness about like, we want to see inside people's homes. We think that we can somehow understand them better if we can see the spaces in which they live and the way that they choose to decorate the spaces totally. in which they live. Of course, social media has totally changed how we relate to that idea. And especially with writers, you know, writers used to be more well able to remain more distant from their readers, right? And more kind of mysterious and just encountered through their words on the page. And now if the writers are on, that we like are on Instagram, we can see what their kitchens look like over their shoulders. Yeah. Or Rachel Cusk doing that like giant oh spread God. in this modern house about her like Norfolk modern mansion. Yeah. Um, I don't know if mansion is the right word, but, and people went crazy for that. Well, yeah. And let me tell you, I mean, what a, what a gorgeous looking space, but it didn't look very comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at it and I was like, hmm, you need a bit more color in there, babe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's also what Deborah Levy is talking about in her book about the way that we fantasize and covet other people's spaces, totally. which is maybe the opposite of what you're doing right now. But I think <laughs> I'm just dissing. Oh, dissing. <laughs> I think a lot of people saw that and it's it's about wish fulfillment. Well, know? and it's also about status. That's the thing. Yeah. You cannot avoid status in all of this. For, for the good and the bad. And the thing is, you can't avoid status in society. Human beings, we seem to be uh, creatures that will always seek to organize ourselves around hierarchy. It's very frustrating, but it seems to happen relentlessly. And obviously, real estate is a huge part of that. It is, it is. So how about the trope of the haunted house? Because it's impossible to talk about real estate in literature and not to mention real estate gone wrong. AKA the haunted house. <laughs> Wait, can that be the name of your program yes, as a real estate agent? <laughs> real estate, real estate gone wrong with Carrie Plitt. But then it would just me be me like 
making bad deals and like failing to sell houses. It would be you standing in wreckages and then turning them into something that's a phoenix rising from the flames and selling them to fabulous famous authors like Rachel Cusk. That sounds really exhausting to me. I (laughs) don't want to do that at all. But anyway, um, what? Why do you think the haunted house is such an enduring theme in literature? Well, because you know, houses are homes, as you were saying in the kind of intro. Like, they're places that we go for comfort, aren't they? And to retreat and to to feel grounded in ourselves, and they do become extensions of our identity very quickly. I think because of the way we relate to stuff and the way we relate to the extension of ourselves in our environments. And so, if your house becomes un unhomely immediately, then that's a terrifying idea, right? I mean, that you have the whole concept of the uncanny, right? In German, the heimlich and unheimlich. Heimlich meaning known or homely, although apparently Heidegger would hate that. So sorry, Martin. Um, And uh, unheimlich means unknown or unhomely. So that's like a very immediate useful trope in horror or suspense literature, because it's something that is universally relatable, I imagine. I think that is a really good summation. Sorry. (laughs) Well, Shirley Jackson does that so well, doesn't she? She really does. And I think it's exactly that sense of the uncanny and flipping something that's meant to be safe into something that is, is threatening. Or what I love that she does, and we have always lived in the castle, it's not necessarily that the house has turned on its residence. It's that the residence have almost turned into the house and separated themselves from society and this and the house becomes a kind of representation of being cut off Mm. um and that's another way that that can manifest can't it yeah and daisy johnson is another writer who's brilliant at that in both sisters and everything under the physical location where this family story unfolds is huge a huge part of what's going on and the kind of quality of the environment reflects the themes of the story in a really brilliant way. Octavia, what book would you recommend to somebody who wanted to read a book about real estate and literature? I'm going to go for In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado because it really encapsulates the slightly more abstract ideological way of relating to the idea. Um, So we spoke to her last year. You can go back and find that show if you want to hear more. I'm bringing it back here because one of the things I love the most about it, it's an experimental memoir, but it looks at the idea of the grand relationship narrative as its own kind of dream house. And basically as a form of inherited and sought after real estate, you could say, defined by the culture pre-existing the individual. And she also looks at the idea of the archive or the canon of lived experience as being another kind of dream house. And again, it's one that certain narratives are excluded from. So on one level, it's a book about Carmen's experience of domestic violence within a queer relationship. But on another, it's a constant re-evaluation of the cultural inheritance that we kind of can't help but be subject to, that's built out of stories and expectations, which becomes in itself an edifice that all kinds of sinister truths can hide inside. And her book is a is kind of a way, a way of like blasting open the doors on this sort of cursed dream house and showing that there are other ways of of being. It's a fabulous, fabulous piece of work. It is. And I didn't think about how much it was in conversation with real estate until you described it to me again in terms of imagined imagined homes and dream houses and the way that our society constructs homes and what happens within them. 
Yeah. It's such a good And book. it's a, you know, it's a real also Heimlich to unheimlich thing, you know, like all of the expectations and desires that you bring with you to a love relationship. And when the love turns sour at best or at worst violent, you know, what a, what a U-turn, right? Mm, yeah. What's yours? Mine is The Little Stranger, which is a novel by Sarah Waters. And I didn't think I liked gothic novels. I really didn't think I did until I picked this up off of Eddie's mother's shelf and read it hungrily over the course of a weekend. It's set in the aftermath of the Second World War in England. It's really at the center. It's It features this very sprawling, crumbling mansion called Hundreds Hall, inhabited by an aristocratic family who have kind of their their fortunes have turned. All they have left is this house. You know, the, the country is moving on without them. And it's this mother and her two adult children who live there. And, you know, it's a very kind of, in some ways, it's, it's a pastiche of the gothic novel because it features this, you know, there's this country doctor who comes and meets them and ends up spending time with them and things start to go wrong. And, you know, the question is, what's, what's happening in this house? I won't give away too much, except to say that there's nothing that feels like a pastiche about it because Sarah Waters is just so good at suspense and so good at characters. And, it just feels completely absorbing. And also, you know, it is a kind of gothic horror, but it is also a real commentary at kind of what we were talking about, about, about class in the UK mm. um, through the prism of and through The Haunted House. And I, I think it's just a masterpiece. It's, it's a really wonderful novel, but also something that just completely grips you from the start to the finish. Oh, it's always such a pleasure when that happens. It's great. And I really didn't think I would like it. If you'd pitched me that novel, I never would have picked it up. And yet I read the first page and I was off. This is why libraries and bookshops are so important. Yeah. <laughs> you have yeah. to be able to encounter books as objects and discover them yourself, you know? I agree. Into it. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and Deborah Levy to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to. So my um, recommendation this month is the novel Detransition Baby by Tori Peters, which I really enjoyed. In a nutshell, the plot is about a trans woman named Reese, her ex-partner Ames, who lived as a trans woman for a while but has since detransitioned, and his current girlfriend Katrina, who is cisgendered and is pregnant with Ames's baby. So that's the triangle. And basically they're trying to figure out whether they can be a queer family together and raise the child as a trio. And I found it to be just, it's very funny, first of all, but it's a really clever and quite mordant look at human complexity and desire and love and the way we can inhabit our own identities in complicated ways and in non not straightforward ways, the way that we absorb ideas about gender, about commitment, about fulfillment even without interrogating them very much necessarily. It's really good on relationships, very real. And Peters herself describes it as gossipy, which I really liked <laughs> because it is, it is a really gossipy novel and in a, in a kind of best way, in the way that I guess good gossip gives you a window onto how somebody else is living. And the window here is onto how these three people are trying to 
understand themselves, but also what they want from life through their relationships to one another and what they want from the world in general. But also, I guess the thing I found very meaningful was the way it looks at what's on offer for different people. So what's on offer for a trans woman? What's on offer for a cis woman? What's on offer for a straight guy? And then, you know, in terms of limitations as much as possibilities. So it's very thoughtful novel. And I think to, to just call it gossipy maybe makes it sound thinner than it is. But it really made me laugh. It made me absolutely cringe as well and recognize some incredibly deep truths about how I relate to gender identity, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is something I actually I very much enjoy from literature. I like it when it does that. But yeah, I think it I think it deserved all the accolades that it's been getting because it's it's a fab novel. I can't wait to read it. Also, it sounds like it's just a novel about real people yeah. doing real things. Um, totally. Speaking of flawed individuals. Right. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I think I, I, I think you'll really enjoy it. Yeah. Deborah, could we please have your book recommendation? Yeah. So what I'm reading at the moment is The Friend by Sigrid Nunes. And it's about a woman who loses her lifelong best friend Um, he suicides and she takes on his uh, apparently huge dog a great dane and this dog who is in some ways similar to the best friend that she has lost um, and who speaks for him in peculiar ways, moves in with her to her apartment. But the thing is that she might be evicted from her small uh, flat because the lease doesn't allow for a dog. So something big is at stake. And uh, what interests me here is not really the dog, but how it does all the talking for the narrator. I have heard so many people recommend that book, and I need to read it now that you've recommended it. I'm going to recommend a book I'm currently reading called The Ice Palace by the Norwegian author Tarja Vesas. The English edition that I'm reading was translated from New Norsk by Elizabeth Rokan, and it was published in the 60s. It's considered, according to the book jacket, if we are to trust it, a classic of Norwegian literature. And the author has a really interesting story. He lived and died in a very small town in Norway, kind of in the wilderness. And reading this book, you you see that influence. Um, It's a very short, strange, intense book. And I'm really loving it. I would not call it a read that gets you ready for the beach in the summer. (laughs) It has some of the most visceral descriptions of ice and cold that I have read in a long time. And it's about this intense friendship struck up between two schoolgirls in an isolated Norwegian town and what happens when one of these girls vanishes. And it's just very psychologically piercing and strange and intoxicating in a way that feels totally unique to itself and totally unique to the world that the author has created. And it feels so different from so many of the books that I've read recently. And I, I think that's so hard to do. And it's, it's also very simple language and yet feels so complicated. There's so much happening underneath the surface. Sounds brilliant. 
That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Deborah Levy and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us by email litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a massive difference and it helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>